I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Keith Straub deserves as much credit as anybody for getting cannabis to where it is today. Almost 50 years ago, he founded the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Law, better known as NORML, a nonprofit dedicated to the plant's legalization. Elevated to the status of emeritus at NORML, his finger remains tightly on the pulse of the evolving cannabis scene. Though not quite ready to take a victory lap, he's happy to see his years of hard work finally paying off, even as he struggles to explain why more than 500,000 people still get arrested each year for simple possession. As for how we got here and the milestones, both favorable and otherwise, along the way, there's no better source material. He was there. He fought the battles and has the scars to prove it. When he began his campaign for marijuana reform, he thought it would take at most 10 years to achieve legalization. But then came the war on drugs and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No, and progress was put on hold until California's Medical Marijuana Initiative forced a recalibration. Even as the battle continues, from his vantage points, it looks like we've reached a tipping point. His views on CBD and vaping might surprise you. He advises to only buy where legal, otherwise you're taking chances with your health. We talk about the worst decision of his life. Hint, the White House has a cameo in this story. Why calling it marijuana beats any other name. And how, when all is said and done, it's really about personal freedom, he says. The government has no right to tell us what to consume in our own home. Well, hi. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Keith Strop of Normal, one of the most important uh, marijuana reform organizations that has ever been created since it's probably, I know it's not exactly the first, but pretty much the first almost 40 years ago at this point, right? Yes, actually, we started it in late 1970. There was actually one group called LIMAR for legalized marijuana that actually predated normal. Uh, They started in the late 50s, early 60s. They were mostly operating in New York State, and uh, one of the founders was poet Allen Ginsberg. Oh, that's Uh, cool. In a strange kind of uh, way things work out, uh, Lemar morphed into a group called Amorphia, which was based on the West Coast, and they raised their money during the early 70s by selling Acapulco gold rolling papers. Now, the only problem with that uh, business model was that rolling papers were considered illegal paraphernalia at the time. And so at some point, uh, they had to find another way to stay afloat, and we ended up merging. uh, Amorphia merged and became the West Coast Office of Normal. So, uh, yes, we've been around now for, I guess, uh, 44 years, something like that. Yeah, that's quite a— 50 years. Yeah, man, that's (laughs) a good job. Congratulations. 
Uh, I looked well, at you. Well, I, I did. When we started, I might add, we didn't think it was a 50 year project. We were young and naive, and we thought it might take 10 or 12 years, but it, it was a bigger job than we thought. <laughs> well, are you ready to take a victory lap yet? Or I know you're now emeritus and not like actively involved on a day to day operation, but still pretty much represent uh, the brand to me. Are uh, you ready to take a victory well, lap? I, I can take a victory lap, or I think the organization can. If if the question is, uh, do most Americans now support the full legalization of marijuana, then we certainly can take a victory lap because the polling is showing roughly 65 to 68 percent of the public now support full legalization. It's close to 90 percent support just medical use. When we started normal in late 1970, only 12% of the country supported legalization. So I think we are past the tipping point, and it now is a matter of simply um, acting out a policy that we all now support. Well, I looked at your bio on, on your website, on normal website, and at the bottom of the page, there was a link to, quote, three pot stocks set to soar. How did, how did, <laughs> I didn't, by the way, I didn't actually read it to see which ones they were, but it made me think about, you know, how do you feel about that? You know, sort of the, the way the industry has gone from, as you described it, you know, 12% or so uh, in favor so many years ago to now, you know, stocks that people are hyping. Well, you know, I'm, um, I'm ambivalent about the commercialization of the new market. On one hand, uh, of course, we knew if, once you legalize marijuana, there's an enormous amount of money to be made. And so you're going to have a lot of creative people jumping in and trying to get their share of, of this new industry. So it's, it's not a shock to me. On the other hand, uh, Normal has always been a public interest organization. We established the organization as a result of some work I had done with consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Uh, in the uh, late 60s. So it was always a consumer organization. Uh, we represent uh, the interest of responsible marijuana smokers. We don't represent the industry. So while I, uh, I'm amazed at some of the things I see happening, and some of it I approve of, some I don't approve of, but uh, it's not the part of the industry that most interests me. And in fact, uh, we sort of stay out of that. I think it, we, we didn't want people to wonder what our motivation was. And if we were involved in getting rich off the new marijuana market, then I think a lot of people might, might wonder if our motivation was profit rather than public policy. So uh, we just stay involved in the public policy debate, and we'll watch the other folks get rich. So you're not an investor then, you uh, on principle? No, no. Um, not at all. In fact, I, I don't, uh, I'm a public interest lawyer. I don't have the resources to invest even if I wanted, but I think it would not be appropriate for me to do that. And, and you're based in Washington still, right? Are you there now? I am. Yeah. I am indeed. I'm sitting at the, the corner of 11th and H Northwest, right downtown Washington. Uh, and our headquarters has always been here in D.C. Uh, it just seemed like if you're going to try to change public policy, you need to be near the heart of the monster, and there's nothing like Washington, D.C., if you're in, involved in public policy. Well, hello. I mean, you know, crazy things going on there right now, in fact, right, with the hearings and on one <laughs> thing or another, but which we won't get into, but, you know, we know it's out there. 
But at the same time, uh, Washington has, you know, looking at Mitch McConnell, the big bad guy, in my opinion, you know, who's out there, but very upfront now in the whole uh, cannabis and the hemp industry, very instrumental in getting the farm bill passed that now allows hemp growing. And I know in Kentucky, it's, it's going to become an industry and throughout the South. And, the, the, you know, there is a sort of a small trend, at least, of politicians getting involved, whether it's John Bomer from, uh, you know, who had been formerly leader of the House and, and then now is involved with, what is it, Canopy Growth, I believe, uh, yeah, you know, an advocate. Yeah, Canada, that's right. Yeah. And, um, wait, wait. go ahead. Well, you know, it, it's ironic in a way that uh, some of these uh, high-powered, uh, highly visible politicians who spent their entire life spouting reefer maniac madness um, have now at some point decided that marijuana is not so bad after all, if I can get rich. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think, I, I think it, it does say something about their character. In other words, they were willing to support a policy that resulted in the arrest of 600,000, 700,000. One year we got up to above 800,000 Americans were arrested on marijuana charges. And 90% of those arrests were for simple possession and use, just marijuana smokers. They didn't have any trouble at all locking up all those people and, and destroying their lives, etc. However, now, when they see a chance to get rich, all of a sudden they rethink their position on marijuana. Now, I'm, I'm pleased to have their support. Uh, I'm not someone who thinks that we should only uh, welcome the support of people who've been with us all along. If that were the case, we'd never win. But um, I'm also not someone who uh, thinks that we should look up to those people as our heroes or uh, our, our, uh, uh, the kind of politicians we should admire. In fact, quite the contrary. I think they're unprincipled. Well, I know, you know, that in some respects, it's the best of times for, for pot, marijuana, whatever you want to call it. I know, actually, let's let's put that on the table now as well, because marijuana, as you know, is is a name that people having disputes about because of its origins and racist and anti-Mexican. Yet, I know it was part of your original name before people started thinking in those terms. How do you feel about it today? Well, um, there have been efforts over the years uh, by some people uh, to convince us that we should never use the word marijuana, that we should only use cannabis or some, you know, some other uh, hemp or whatever. Um, I, I think that's kind of silly. I mean, uh, the people who favor legalization favor legalization regardless of what you call the drug, and the people who oppose legalization will oppose it regardless of why you call it. So to me, changing the name is sort of a, a silly attempt to hide the ball so that maybe they don't realize that what we're really doing is legalizing marijuana. The reality is almost everyone in the country knows exactly what you mean when you say marijuana. Only a small percentage of the population are familiar with terms such as cannabis. So, uh, no, I, I think uh, the, the name has nothing to do with our ability to change laws and to end prohibition, and I think it's kind of a silly concern that some people have. But on the other hand, like let's say uh, CBD, uh, which is also enjoying enormous popularity, would it? Do you think it would be as popular if it had the name marijuana attached to it? Uh, you know, well, the, the uh, same first, with hemp. First off, 
you you mentioned the topic, of course, that is getting enormous amounts of attention over the past year or so in this country. And if you believed everything you saw in the media or on the Internet, uh, you would think CBD cures all major illnesses from cancer on down and that it was truly a miracle drug. In fact, much of the products that are now sold claiming to be CBD, when they are tested in a laboratory, number one, they almost never have the same level of, of cannabidiol, that's the CBD, as listed on the label. It's all, almost always far less. Some of it has no CBD at all. Some of it has heavy metals. Some of it have uh, has dangerous pesticides. There are some states where they are literally taking it off of the shelf, and yet there are other states where you can go to the corner gas station and in the little mini mart at the gas station they'll they'll offer to sell you bottles of CBD. Uh, again, I, I would suggest that people need to be uh, far more careful about what they're putting into their body. I don't doubt that CBD has some very positive medical applications. But the research I've seen suggests that CBD is most effective if it contains an equal amount of THC. Yet what these CBD sellers are claiming is that it doesn't have any THC, which is why they're claiming it's legal. Well, if it doesn't have any THC, then it's not going to be very effective as a medicine. Okay, so but the legal part, the one that is comes from the the, le- the states where it's legal, uh, do you feel more comfortable with that? That's already being tested and looked at and you know approved. Yes, in states where they have legalized marijuana, uh, either for medical use or other or for full legalization, and where the products have to be tested by a state certified lab. Yes, I feel much better about that. At least you can feel reasonably comfortable that you're getting what they're claiming they're selling. Now, as we know from this latest uh, health crisis that has arisen in the last few months around this country regarding vaping, you know, the use of uh, vaporizers, if, if someone were asking my advice on vaporizing, I would say right now, don't vaporize, period, uh, either smoke joints if you want to use marijuana um, or, uh, you know, or do edibles, but I would not be doing vaporizers until we understand a lot more about what has caused this recent health crisis that's totally based on vaporization. You've been, you know, around long enough to see the sort of go ups and downs of this because there was a time, you know, in the 70s, I guess, when when you first started that it seemed like this was on the upswing, that it was much more tolerated uh, during the days of Jimmy Carter, for example. And and then it then we hit the war on drugs. Right. And everything went just sort of way back down again to zero. Well, yeah. You're right. What happened is during the 70s, the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 was passed by Congress. Uh, it was mostly a terrible, uh, harsh uh, anti, anti-drug anti act, and it had mandatory sentencing and had a lot of things that in today's world no one would be very proud of. But it had one section that was a surprise – uh, former Congressman Ed Koch from New York, he ended up becoming the mayor of your city. But when he was a member of Congress, he managed to get a provision in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, the Federal Drug Act, 
that established the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. And at that time, we we didn't expect a lot out of it because it was to be a 13-member commission, but nine members were appointed by former President Richard Nixon. So uh, we didn't expect much. Well, uh, one of the commissioners was uh, the professor at UCLA, and he knew that most of his fellow commissioners had never actually seen marijuana being smoked. They didn't know anything about it other than what they had read. So they managed to establish some private sessions where they invited adults over to smoke marijuana and let the commissioners observe them as they socialized for a couple of hours. And I think that may have had more to do with changing their minds than anything else. When they came back with the recommendations on marijuana policy, they surprised everyone, and certainly including President Richard Nixon, by recommending what we now call decriminalization. They recommended that we eliminate all penalties for the personal possession and use of marijuana and that we allow adults to share marijuana among themselves on a not-for-profit basis. So we took the commission's report around to the various states and managed to get marijuana decriminalized in a, a total of 11 states. And frankly, we thought in another four or five years, We'd have marijuana decriminalized every place, and then hopefully we could begin to work on full legalization. And in in came Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and the parents' groups and Just Say No. And there was a period there in the late 70s, early 80s, where the test for whether something was considered appropriate was whether it was appropriate for children. And so literally, they would say, if it's dangerous for children, then you shouldn't legalize it. Now, if you really followed that rule, uh, sex would be illegal. You couldn't drive, <laughs> fly, uh, fly an airplane. I mean, you know, there are ha- half the things we do in life that we enjoy as adults, you wouldn't be able to do because they're inappropriate for children. We went 18 years before we won another statewide victory. And when we did, it was California. And this time, we won an initiative to legalize the medical use of marijuana. That was a whole new topic. We During the 70s, we there was almost no discussion of the medical use of marijuana. It was all presumed to be based on policy for recreational use. But by by, uh, 1996, we won medical use in California, and there's been no looking back. And also, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that the medical marijuana was pioneered by the AIDS uh, activists who opened— Without question, by the way. In particular, there was a a famous activist who just died in the last year, year and a half out of California, who started uh, uh, openly providing marijuana. He was a gay activist. He began to provide marijuana to anyone who was suffering from AIDS, and they were finding it was the most effective uh, drug to treat the symptoms uh, that they were suffering from the AIDS medication. Um, and he played a major role in uh, getting people to rethink and, and take, a, take a fresh look at marijuana as a possible useful medicine. Uh, then in 1995, he and another uh, a group of people got an initiative started to collect signatures to try to put the medical use of marijuana on the ballot. They they were not going to make the ballot. In other words, they didn't have much funding, and so they didn't have the wherewithal to qualify. But at 
uh, at the last moment, a group called the Drug Policy Foundation, headed by Ethan Nadelman, stepped in. They had some major funding from George Soros and Peter Lewis and a number of other uh, progressive rich people in this country. And they took it over, and they qualified for the ballot. They ran a professional campaign, and they won that in, ni- in 1996. Uh, just to put the name, it's Dennis Perron, I believe, right, that you were referring yes, to? I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to give him the credit. And, uh, <laughs> it, I, I, oh, it is Dennis well, Perron. He, have, he you know, played a, an enormously important role. Yeah. So you mentioned initiative, which is another area of interest for me, because it seems to work better than going through the legislature, whereas, like, for example, in New York, we just can't seem to get through the legislature. And other states, California particularly, has done very well through the initiative. And uh, Michael Moore has, has said that he believes they should put a marijuana legalization um, on, on as an initiative because it brings out the vote that it will help in the presidential election. Is that something you've ever thought about? Yes. In, in fact, there are a number of states, including uh, Wisconsin and Michigan in particular, that did adopt by initiative decriminalization policies in 26 of the states. You have no referendum, no voter initiative. So you have no choice but to do it the old-fashioned way. And when you're dealing with uh, contentious social issues like gay rights and marijuana legalization, generally, we do better when we can go directly to the people. Elected officials tend to run scared. So the people on these issues have been with us long before our elected officials were. When we won in California, for example, I don't think we had a single statewide officer that favored legalization when it passed. However, today, every statewide officer in California thinks legalization made sense and they're all delighted. Same thing, same thing in Colorado, when we passed Colorado legalization. Every, every statewide officer opposed it. They now all favor it. So, uh, you know, what I'm saying is that I think initiatives are terribly uh, helpful when you're trying to change public policy. But eventually, you do have to go back and be able to win it by way of the state legislature in half of the country. And any time you're dealing with state legislation, you have to accept compromise. When you're dealing with a voter initiative, you can draft it the way you want it. You can draft what you think would be a perfect law. When you're dealing with a piece of legislation, you don't have that luxury. So the the types of legalization that we will likely come up with in states like New York and New Jersey, et cetera, as we were getting close in both of those states, they're going to involve some compromises that we might not like, but that's the nature of, a, of the democratic process. And even so, today, given all of the progress we've made, there's still over half a million people being arrested for marijuana. What, what are they getting arrested for? How, how, how you know, well, keep, what is the justice in that? Keep in mind that... We have 33 states that have a meaningful version of medical marijuana, but that still leaves 17 where they don't. We have 11 states in the District of Columbia that have legal recreational use, but that still leaves 39 that don't. So uh, the FBI just recently released their uniform crime reports for last year, and there were 630-some thousand marijuana arrests still happening in this country. Now, Ninety percent of those, by the way, were for simple possession and use, just just smokers. Uh, but uh, 
even that is an improvement at the at the peak about three four years ago. We were up to eight hundred and fifty thousand arrests, marijuana arrests each year. So it's coming down, although technically in the last two years there's been a slight tick up. But again, uh, that's a temporary uptick. I am quite certain that uh, over the next five to ten years, uh, that number is going to be down around a couple of hundred thousand arrests. It's not going to be up around five and six hundred thousand like it is today. And are you in favor of pardoning people for nonviolent offenses who have been locked up either currently or have a history of that? Oh, without question. In fact, you're seeing that with legalization now. In the last few states that have been dealing seriously with full legalization, they include expungement and pardons as part of the law. And a second part is they now have what are being called social equity provisions. Uh, We all recognize that African-Americans and Hispanics have paid a much higher price for marijuana prohibition than have white smokers. In fact, uh, the the rate of smoking, percentage of smoking, is about the same regardless of race. The rate of arrest is anywhere from four to eight times higher for blacks and brown-skinned Americans than they are for white smokers. And so uh, what a lot of the newer laws are proposing is that when a state is establishing criteria for who qualifies to get a license to either cultivate or or, uh, process or or retail outlets to sell marijuana, that there should be a special aggressive effort made to be sure that those communities that were hardest hit by prohibition don't get left out when we now legalize marijuana. Now we see mushrooms uh, being discussed, you know, to, to get legalized mushrooms. Uh, magic mushrooms and middle America is playing with psychedelics. You know, they're microdosing in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, ayahuasca is, is a rage. Frog toad venom, you know, all, all kinds of things that, you know, that's being used by the average middle America at this point or mainstream America based on my sort of informal anecdotal experience here. These are not people who have you know, in any way devoted themselves to uh, exploration of this nature in the past, but at this time find themselves uh, attracted to to these psychedelic experiences. Are you in favor of legalizing all drugs? Well, I wouldn't be in favor of legalizing all drugs if by that you mean uh, that you're going to sell them uh, legally at at a retail outlet at the corner store. For example, um, I wouldn't want to see cocaine stores here in Washington, D.C., although we do have marijuana (laughs) stores, and I'm delighted. So I think all drugs and drug use should be decriminalized. Uh, There's no reason to treat someone as a criminal just because they're using a drug, even if the drug may be harmful to them. We need to educate them to their honest risk. Don't exaggerate the risk. We need to acknowledge that for some people in some situations, they they may be a very positive experience. But uh, again, that has to do with recognizing that what we're really talking about here is only incidentally about marijuana. It's really about personal freedom. And if, in fact, we recognize personal freedom, the government has no business coming into our homes to know what music we listen to, what books we read, 
how we conduct ourselves in the privacy of our bedroom or whether we smoke marijuana or drink alcohol when we relax in the evening or use hallucinogens. It's just none of the government's business. This all has to do with personal freedom. You mentioned, you know, that you live in Washington and and you were, were leery of having uh, cocaine stores. I can understand because, uh, you know, those politicians, if they were on coke, whoa. Um, who knows? <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, they may already be for all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, on the other hand, I was wondering because you have spent so many years there, and you've walked through the halls, and you probably know many of the legislators and uh, staffers and and all of that. Um, and you know, I imagine lots of them smoke, but have not like publicly made it uh, evident. I don't know if they take drug tests for that or what. But I'm just curious if you know because in the gay community, for example, when people started this whole idea of outing people and uh, the debate came down to well you know you shouldn't out anyone but if they happen to also be you know outspokenly anti-gay and they also happen to be gay at the same time which we know has happened then perhaps it's a good idea to let the world know that they are gay instead of hiding in that way. So do you feel that, you know, with regard to to pot or anything of that nature, where if if there were a someone that you knew who was against legalization but personally smoked, how would you feel obligation to 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 you know out that person or how would you react to that and have you and do you know anything like that is anything like that familiar to you well uh, certainly marijuana smoking is so common today in the united states that as i say roughly one out of two americans have smoked at some time in their lives so that's not appreciably different for elected officials i suspect roughly one out of two members of Congress have probably smoked a marijuana cigarette at some point in their life. But I wouldn't generally want to out those folks just because uh, they have smoked marijuana so long as their position in favor of prohibition is not a crusade. Now, if in fact they were building their political career principally on locking up those of us who do smoke marijuana. And then if we discovered that they were, in fact, going home in the evening and smoking marijuana themselves, uh, I would be delighted if someone outed them. Um, I I think in that case, it's certainly justifiable. But uh, generally, outing somebody, the problem with that is it sort of suggests there's something wrong with uh, smoking marijuana. You've outed them. You've made them pay a price. Well, we really work in the other direction. Our goal is to demonstrate by by our own use of marijuana uh, and, and by um, the political movement that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana. There should be no reason anybody wants to hide it or needs to hide it. Uh, marijuana smokers come in all shapes and all forms. Some of them are conservative, some are liberal. They're, they're all age groups. The only difference is they work hard, they pay taxes, they raise families. When they go home at night, they prefer to smoke a joint where millions of other Americans prefer to have a glass of wine or or a beer. Otherwise, marijuana smokers are just average Americans. And I think we benefit by pursuing that strategy rather than trying to penalize those private smokers who may not yet feel comfortable coming out in the open. 
Yeah, because I, I have a sl- little bit of a hidden agenda in asking that question, I have to say, because, uh, you know, in your Wikipedia page, I don't know when you last looked at it, <laughs> but... There, I, think I, know where, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> right, you know where this is going, because uh, I'm going to read this paragraph. It says, the administration of President Jimmy Carter had favored marijuana reform. However, Peter Bourne... Carter's drug advisor disagreed with Straub on ending the spraying of Mexican marijuana fields with the herbicide paraquat. In retaliation, Straub acknowledged to a reporter that Bourne had snorted cocaine at Normal's 1977 Christmas party. Bourne was subsequently fired. You eventually lost your job, and the folks at Normal didn't like snitches and eased him out the door, is what it says there. How do you feel? <laughs> is... uh, well, it, it a long time was ago. A, a, a challenging time, and uh, the part about Paraquat is, is very real. Uh, the U.S. government was, during those years, spraying Paraquat on marijuana grown just south of the border, or the Mexican border. Uh, but some of the marijuana we were hearing was still being harvested and sent across the border and sold some of it because the, the paraquat turned it into a, a gold color. Some of it was being sold as Acapulco gold, which back then was considered one of the, the premium strains of marijuana that you could get. Paraquat is an incredibly uh, dangerous pesticide that even just a couple of drops on a, on a teacup would, uh, would poison you. You would die from it. And so we were very concerned at the time that the U.S. government inadvertently might be poisoning marijuana smokers. We were hearing reports of people who were buying that marijuana as it came across the border. So I met with Dr. Bourne, the president's drug advisor during that phase, uh, actually met with him at the White House and asked him if they would look into this problem. And because the the government seizes marijuana at the Mexican border every year, and they collect a certain amount of it, and they test it for all kinds of things. And we asked them if they would test to find out if any of the marijuana was contaminated with uh, with pesticide. Yeah, Paraquat. So sure enough, Peter called me back a, a few weeks later and gave me the report. And I forget the exact percentage, but it was fairly significant. Something like 17% of the marijuana confiscated along the border at that point uh, was contaminated with Paraquat. And so we thought that they would say, okay, then we, we'll stop using Paraquat. We'll use some other pesticide that isn't as toxic as Paraquat. But they didn't. They took the position that it's illegal, therefore we can do what we want. And we literally said to Peter, uh, well, uh, we understand it's, it's still illegal, and we understand you have a right to arrest us if you catch us with it, but you can't execute us. You can't poison us. Uh, that's, that would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment ban against cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, but they would not budge on that. So it is true that we were caught up in a, a fairly high-tension fight with the administration about that time. And then separately, independent of anything we were doing, Dr. Bourne ended up in a jam because he had written a prescription for uh, some for quaaludes. Remember, quaaludes back then were often used as a social drug. People would take quaaludes, and I guess it, it made it easier to find your way to, to the bedroom. <laughs> yes. and, uh, 
Peter got caught up in a bit of an embarrassing scandal where he had written a prescription for quaaludes to one of his assistants, and somebody found out about it. Well, as a result of that, uh, I began to get calls from journalists who had been at this Christmas party asking me if I would confirm that Peter Bourne had snorted cocaine at that party because that rumor had been floating around. And like an idiot, and it was certainly the stupidest decision I ever made in my life, uh, I said, I will neither confirm nor, de- nor deny <laughs> the allegation. Well, that's just a, a sort of a silly code for saying, uh, yes, it's true. And the next day in the Washington Post, there was my quote saying, I neither confirm or deny. Peter was subsequently fired. I was subsequently Uh, eased out of normal, and it was a a very awkward time. By the way, just for the record, Peter Bourne is uh, and was a lovely man. I liked him. I worked with him for a number of years, and I was terribly sorry for his fate in that incident, and certainly I was sorry for the role that I played in it. Well, the good news is they saw the error of their ways. They brought you back. (laughs) They needed you. and uh, That's true. I, I came back in 1996. I was away from normal for about 12 years. I was doing other public interest work. I lobbied for family farmers and for the Arts Council and uh, ran the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers for a few years. But in 1994, uh, the normal board invited me to come back on the board and then subsequently asked me if I would uh, take over again as executive director. And I served a second decade from 95 to 2005, and I've been legal counsel uh, since that time. Well, as they say, thank you for your service. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have uh, survived the turbulent era that I, that I lived through. And sometimes when I think about it, I'm surprised that we didn't all go to jail because obviously we were all smoking marijuana and it was still treated pretty seriously during those early years. But uh, one way or another, uh, managed to stay out of jail most of the time. Yes, and, and it's fortunate for us that you were able to do all that work and get us to this place where we are today. So uh, thank you very much for uh, talking with me and also for all your years of uh, keeping, thank you keeping for, marijuana alive. That's very kind of you. Thank very you. kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at ShopBurb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>